everyone, Kareem right here. Today we have the pleasure to interview David Marinick, who is the founder and CEO at Fan Club Sports Capital. David, thank you for taking the time for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Kareem. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So can you provide an overview of your sports company, including its mission and goals? Yeah, absolutely. So Fan Club Sports Capital is a global investor community and sports syndication platform. And we give private investment managers access to out-of-the-box tools to quickly set up investment vehicles, get access to verified LPs, to make deal, deals Excuse me, in pro sports clubs in a way that's really, I think, effortless, social, and you know, accessible. Um, if you're thinking of comps first in the space, the way I like to describe ourselves to both partners, to investors, is... We call ourselves sort of the, the angel list, you know, the yield street or, or even the I capital uh, of professional sports. In, in terms of our mission and goals, you know, our goal here is to democratize access to investing in professional sport and really make these opportunities available to broader subsets of investor classes globally. Yeah, that's amazing what you guys are doing. And I, and I love that because fans are already committed. Um, you know, they spend time watching games on the TV, they drive to games, they buy jerseys. So the fans are already committed and to provide them with that opportunity is amazing what you guys are doing. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. And, you know, it's it's been an interesting journey, I think, is when we initially came into this space, uh, the goal of the platform is actually as a retail focused platform first, right? It was fan first. Um, you know, quickly when we got in, we realized that there are, you know, several layers of challenges uh, in red tape that need to be addressed. And so, and when we first got into market, we've sort of catered more towards what I'll call, you know, the high net worth, accredited investor crowd. Uh, but as we continue to build out the company, continue to add functionality, uh, you know, we will be in a position to start launching retail deals, hopefully towards the end of this year. Understood. So what inspired you to start this company and what gap in the market does it aim to address? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. I'll sort of, I think, maybe jump in on a bit of my background as well, because I think it's relevant to the to the conversation and topic. But uh, I grew up, you know, in Southern Ontario in Canada. Uh, I grew up a, a hockey player, a pretty average one. Um, but I got uh, swept up in the analytics movement that happened in hockey sort of in the mid-2010s. Um, I ended up spending some time doing some sort of short analytics consulting work with some teams in the Ontario Hockey League which is a junior hockey league located in Canada. And then also did some sort of brief stints uh, with some clubs in the national hockey league. Um, eventually stepped out, you know, I just found a bit of a ceiling and ultimately entered the uh, FinTech world uh, actually as a, a startup employee and, and entrepreneur and ended up working in that space in FinTech startups of financial services um, for probably about six years after that. Um, Spent some time, you know, we had a, a bit of a merger uh, that went on with one of our companies and, I, and, you know, I ended up working in investment banking after that, uh, mostly growth stage pre-IPO private placements and then venture capital as well, where we were mostly investing at the intersection of fintech and, and capital markets. And my focus always sort of throughout those years was just how do we use technology to increase liquidity and investment access in alternative assets. So how do we open up all the awesome growth that's going on in venture capital, in private equity, in real estate, crypto, and, and kind of offer those opportunities to more individuals. Um, I will say 
you know, the goal to democratize was not you know, necessarily our incentive for getting into the marketplace, but it was more so kind of just a, a frank look at the state of the private capital markets uh, and understanding really the, the challenges and barriers that were present for private market companies, both in the United States, but also globally uh, in accessing public market financing and liquidity. So back in probably 2018 or 19, I actually got my first chance uh, to work on a sports advisory transaction. I got to engage, I was very lucky, it was a very unique experience. Uh, got to engage in the capital restructuring of a top, let's call it 15 uh, European football club. Uh, and it was just a really illuminating experience walking into it. You know, I was already a, a sports fan, um, but you know, you saw some of the, the, the trends in technology that were occurring in pro sports across media and content and technology and the fan experience. And it was really incredible to witness. But then at the same time, you know, you saw what I would describe as probably the worst investment conditions I had seen across any vertical of the private markets present within the pro sports space. And what do I mean by that? Uh, I mean that, you know, it's very difficult for minority owners and LPs of, of professional sports clubs to sell their stakes without suffering some kind of extreme, what we call an illiquid discount. Um, you know, the minimum buy-in for many of these opportunities was $25 million plus. And, and frankly, you know, there's not a strong history of clubs entering the public markets and really achieving that exit or liquidity, you know, that many investors in the private markets seek to get. And so for us, what really became a question of was, well, how do we reconcile all the amazing growth across technology and media? How do we reconcile the scarcity of the asset class? How do we reconcile the resiliency of the asset class um, with the fact that it's sort of borderline impossible for average people to deal make it in the space. And so essentially our goal was to bring to bear for investors a private markets investment platform that would really give investors exposure to sports as an asset class, but then even ultimately, you know, introduce some liquidity features down the road that would enable them to get out of their investment. Um, ultimately for us, you know, I'd say sort of the inciting incident that really caused us to get into market, you know, was, was the pandemic. And you notice that clubs were struggling with cash flows. Many of them were turning to debt financing and sort of loading up in unhealthy ways. And, you know, we really saw the ability to move into market with, you know, an equity investment platform um, as something that was sort of an opportune time. So launched in the fall last year, um, you know, I think it's really been opportune timing, sort of given the development and maturity of the ecosystem in the space. Um, really, our pitch is simple for our investors, which is, how does sports form a piece of your alternative asset portfolio and sit next to your other alternative asset investments, your VC, your PE, your real estate, et cetera. Um, you know, I think in the past, if you had 25 million bucks, you could maybe buy half a percent of an NBA team. Um, now, you know, we're working on tickets right now, we're working with a range of investors, frankly, but, you know, working on investment access and opportunities all the way down to $250,000. Uh, in, in, in the major pro sports leagues uh, and globally, which I think is, is, is quite accessible. And that also gives you the ability to not only allocate towards one asset in terms of your sports strategy, but also get diverse exposure across multiple teams, leagues, geographies, et cetera. And then I'll just say the last thing here, which I think is sort of timely, um, has been, you know, probably, you know, essentially lucky on our behalf. But I think the, the broader uncertainty in the public markets has actually sort of played into our hands. People are looking for uncorrelated asset classes at this point in time. You know, they want a safe haven for their for their capital. And sports really is a remarkable history of being an extremely resilient asset class. And 
all different kinds of macroeconomic conditions. Um, you know, economics are driven by TV. Those are multiple years in length, those contracts. Fixed cash flows, I don't think people confuse the clubs for these EBITDA cash flow juggernauts, because they're certainly not. But, you know, what they do do is they post, you know, consistent valuation increase over time in extreme macroeconomic conditions. And we have amazing data on how they've held up in inflation and stagflation in the 1970s, you know, when the, when the tech bubble popped in 2001, the Great Recession of 2008, even the drawdown of the last year, which, you know, in no sort of order has included, you know, a, a war in Ukraine, you know, a, a banking crisis, a crypto crash, sort of all rolled, rolled into one in the context of rising interest rates. And um, we just feel like that asymmetric return profile in a managed capacity has a role to play uh, within people's portfolio construction. Understood. Yeah, that, that, there was a lot of great points that you mentioned in there. Um, what led you down the pathway of finance and then into sports? You, know, I mean, you, you, you mentioned, you know, venture capital, which intrigues me. I'm learning a lot about, you know, your private into private equity. So, um, you know, these are very capital driven industries and I'm, I'm always interested to learn more, especially from you. So just um, share a little bit more about what led you down the path of finance and how these opportunities opened up for you down your Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, look, I think it was a sort of confluence of factors. Number one, you know, I was very lucky to attend a university in Canada called the, the, the University of Western Ontario. Uh, they have a pretty renowned business school called the Ivy Business School um, that if you're trying to compare it in terms of a global stage, I guess you could call it the Wharton of Canada. Uh, so getting exposure to sort of like-minded individuals and people, getting exposed to finance in that manner, had some amazing professors. I think, you know, most kids who walk through that school are sort of geared towards management consulting or investment banking. So I think that was definitely one avenue. Not that that was my, you know, path in my early career, right? It was actually more focused on, um, you know, technology within financial markets. I think, you know, when I first sort of got involved in, in the startup ecosystem, um, my entry point was actually in, in cryptocurrency. And for me, it was extremely exciting. You know, we looked at all, you know, the way that technology was innovating around various mediums, um, you know, media, et cetera. And I just thought that money was probably one of the, the, the mediums that stood the greatest chance of being disrupted and also governed daily actions on a day-to-day -day basis, probably more than any other medium on the planet. And so I got really involved in crypto, um, ended up sort of, you know, meeting like-minded individuals and, and getting involved in the startup space there. Our focus in the early innings was actually in launching token sales for early stage crypto companies. And I think, you know, what you have to remember at that point in time, um, it was around 2015 or 16, um, you know, a lot of early stage companies in the blockchain ecosystem couldn't get access to traditional routes of financing. They couldn't get access to debt financing. They couldn't get access to equity financing. Probably only a handful of VCs that actually knew what they were doing within the space. And so, you know, without sort of those two arrows in your quiver, you know, we saw that Vitalik Buterin, who's the founder of Ethereum, launched his initial coin offering in 2015. That was the sale of essentially what is an economic or participatory right you know, to use his governance blockchain. And so that essentially became the model of financing those early stage companies. We got involved in the financing of those early stage companies um, using token sales structures. Eventually, you know, and, and it's funny how people still think that the rules are not clear, but once the SEC sort of made the rules around token sales clear and, and gave their guidance on how it fit with under securities rules, um, and I apologize, I'm just getting a phone call quickly. <laughs> 
uh, once they gave that guidance, you know, we quickly pivoted to say, okay, well, how do we use that same technology that we think is, you know, really underpinning and can be the future of capital markets activity and use it as actually the basis for capital raising in the private capital markets. And so that was really my entrance to it is sort of backdoored through the crypto sphere. Um, I will say that, you know, over time, I think we've sort of landed more on the finance side of this than the crypto side or even, you know, enterprise blockchain side of this. I think it, it still stands to reason that, Technologies like that will have a large influence on the future of capital markets development. I think we do need to see probably some better tooling um, in, in things that are more accessible for investors to participate with before it becomes sort of wide, you know, widely spread and adopted. Understood. You mentioned a great point back then that sports is able to handle the turbulence going on, whatever is going on in the world like COVID-19, sports was able to survive that. Um, you know, do you have a specific sport that you tend to focus on like soccer, for example, or basketball, or is it just very broad and all sports are surviving? Yeah, no, look, I think what we've done here at Phantom Sports Capital is essentially bring models of private market liquidity that work extremely well in other verticals of the private markets, you know, private equity, venture capital, and bring them to a space like sports, which I think is probably the most illiquid, um, but also at the same time, probably has the largest potential global investor audience of any private market asset. Now, what I will say is in comparison to those other verticals in comparison to the private equity vertical venture capital vertical the quantity of assets is not necessarily as high as you're going to get um you know in in other areas and so for us i think taking a global approach from the beginning has always been extremely important i'd say you know de facto by virtue of where we're located as a company which is in toronto but also have members of our team in other areas of north america you know philadelphia dc san francisco um, you know, we, we are, you know, closer to some of the capital markets activity in the sort of big five in North America and even in the minor leagues. Um, I'll also say that, you know, we're very much keen uh, in, in learning and understanding more about the evolution of what's going on within the capital market ecosystem in European football. Um, it's the dynamics around those investments are, are very much uh, different. But I think also in terms of volume, you know, there's a lot of people that are, you know, potential investors, I think, in North American sports assets that kind of are priced out, you know what I mean, of the North American markets right now. Uh, maybe they want greater, you know, board level governance and control. They want a greater share of the team. And you can go in and you can go over to to Europe and, you know, you don't have to buy into the top leagues, right? You can buy into leagues that are sort of in tier two and three. You can get sort of outsized economic percentages. And, you know, if you are able to actually sort of, you know, right the ship on some of those teams, you do experience some sort of more venture capital like returns if you're able to get that club promoted up to the top league. So that's interesting. I also think that, you know, some of those investors will say that they don't think that those European clubs are as well commercialized as North American teams. And I think they sort of see that as a low hanging fruit that they can go into and sort of, um, you know, be able to implement some, some changes in the commercial side quickly. I will say, I think that's that's easier said than done uh, in a lot of cases. And I think that we're probably going to see, you know, a return profile in terms of the managers who are investing in that space, maybe be similar to the venture capital ecosystem where, you know, you're kind of hitting two out of 10 and it's a bit of more of a Pareto distribution. Whereas, you know, if you're buying to the North American leagues, the top five, you know, the, the economics around, you know, how the leagues are even structured themselves and, and the fact that they're pretty much de facto monopolies means that you can be a minority LP in one of those teams and, and kind of not have to do anything, fly to the moon for 30 years, <laughs> come back and you'll have probably made, you know, a pretty, a pretty strong return or at least consistent return on the capital you invested. 
For sure. Is there a specific market that you guys are focused on? Or you, you know, I know you guys are based out of Toronto, but is there any specific market? Yeah, no, I wouldn't describe the Canadian sports capital markets as sort of particularly robust. Um, that being said, you know, I, I would love to help our, you know, have our platform be an, an engine of capitalization within Canadian sport. I think that, you know, there's there's a lot of growth here in, you know, men's and women's soccer, I think is super interesting here. You know, I've been talking to some folks uh, in, in the pro rugby space, in the cricket space. I think that's awesome. I think Canada is, is, is a really awesome, uh, you know, cultural mosaic. Uh, and I think as we sort of, you know, the, the demographics of the country change, you know, I think we're going to see the development and, and growth of a lot of uh, sports that I wouldn't necessarily say were, you know, initially native here or, um, you know, popular here. But I think that's super exciting to be involved in in a business capacity. You know, the United States is still the mecca of sport. Um, that's, you know, we're regulated in the United States as a registered investment advisor. There's a reason we did that. You know, it's, it's, it's definitely where, you know, the bulk of assets and also the bulk of, you know, investors are located, but I'd say predominantly we're focused in North America and Europe, but, you know, we continue to look at number one capital partners and number two opportunities across the globe. Understood. Could you share some key milestones or achievements that your company has reached since it's, uh, started? Yeah, you know, what I will say is getting into this industry as an outsider and someone who is, you know, was sort of more of a, a fintech guy getting into the sports industry, you know, it's not for the faint of heart. Um, there's there's sort of what I like to call three complex layers that kind of make up the, the ecosystem, right? And number one, in that this was a sort of particular nut that we had to crack was, well, how do we deal with number one assets? Because like I said, we're very global in our scope. So how do we deal with assets on a global basis and how do we make sure that fits within the confines of of securities rules right so if we're dealing with the european football club we're dealing with north american club maybe something you know we've looked at opportunities in liga mx in mexico right how do we make sure that we're being compliant in terms of the assets that we're handling but then on the flip side of that how do we also make sure that we're being compliant within the context of investors that we're handling from a global basis and that's not only as it relates to securities rules you know there's all sorts of tricky tax items that you know need to be addressed for some of these things and so that was frankly a lot of brain damage uh that had to be done towards figuring that out i think the second component here um which which is you know very important is the leagues all have different rules around ownership and restrictions associated with that right and those might be different in european football as they relate to the nfl as they relate to the other leagues in north america and so really you know developing a product that i think is lightweight but also fits into commonly accepted ownership structures that are already present within those major leagues was super important for us to do. And I think I mentioned earlier, you know, uh, in this chat where we sort of came to market with, not came to market, but we're, you know, investigating how a retail platform would, would be effective. And we sort of pivoted more towards the high net worth investors because it was just easier to start deal making in the major leagues and easier us, easy for us to sort of get entrenched within the ecosystem. Um, so that sort of second component was obviously also a lot of brain damage to figure out. And then I think the third component here, which is also, you know, important to consider is that, you know, for the past 25 years, the sports ownership has really been this old boys club. And, you know, I'm sort of was definitely coming at this as, as a bit of an outsider. Uh, we, you know, sort of getting ourselves entrenched in that ecosystem was, was super important for us. I think for us, it was, you know, how do we find people that are, really innovative within the space and you know how do we get them to see the value of what we're trying to bring to market and so as a result what we've done is we've tried to bring in a lot of investment bankers in the space both on the team on our advisory board and into our partnership network um 
you know, who have history of doing tons of transactions within the space um, and then, you know, get them to really see the value of what you're trying to bring to market. And so I'd say those three layers took probably a lot longer than I would have expected to sort of get set up within, within the market. Um, you know, we did launch the platform in the fall last year. We picked up our registered investment advisory license in the United States in January of this year. And then we'll have some pretty, pretty cool deals to announce. You know, we've done a couple of SPVs, mostly in the esports space. Um, but then, you know, we're going to have some pretty cool deals to announce, you know, I think with some, some reputable teams and some well-known transactions, you know, probably over the next 30 days or so. Awesome. You know, a little bit back in time into the early stage of the company, can you just, you know, share how you guys start to generate deal flow? I mean, lead flow and deal flow. Yeah, I mean, look, I think the funny thing is if you know where to look for deals in the space, there's actually more deals than there are investors. And I think that sort of take of it initially was something that I didn't necessarily was able to wrap my head around for myself. You know, sports seemed like a very natural asset to actually prove out a private market liquidity thesis because it's they're so transparent. They have these global brands. Um, you know, it's very easy to find out financial information from valuation to debt levels to, you know, EBITDA to how much the players make, you know, there's news networks that report on these assets. And so there's, there's a problem in the pri investing in the private markets. It's called information asymmetry. And it's where, you know, some, some things are hard for private market investors to get their head around in terms of information disclosure to be able to, you know, we don't have the same, um, uh, what's the word I'm trying to look for you know, established things that have to be disclosed as in public market companies. And so sports made a natural sort of avenue for us to sort of prove out the private market liquidity thesis. Um, what I will say is that, you know, there's a lot of teams out there. Once you know how to find them, there's a lot, but the sports industry and the private capital market ecosystem in sports is so opaque in how it works Everything is done behind closed doors. Everything's under, you know, done under the guise of an NDA. And so I think that the industry itself needs to work harder in terms of, you know, how do we put these willing and, and capable investors to work? Because there's a lot of teams right now that are severely undercapitalized. You can look at the crumbling infrastructure, you know, in stadiums, particularly across Europe and Italy, for example, that could use, you know, a good degree of capital investment. In our view, there's there's a lot of investors to be willing to do that. It's just that the, the, the you know, the rails to be able to support that investment activity don't necessarily exist. So for us, I mean, getting access to deals, it really came from three, three avenues. The, you know, the first was relationships with ownership that we built over time and our partners have built out. Those are directly with owners who are either majority owners or minority LPs in leagues across the globe. The second thing is relationships with deal makers. As our platform works, you know, we are not the ones that are taking stakes in any of these teams. What we're doing is empowering you know, larger funds or even solo GPs for that matter, current owners, multi-club ownership structures, private equity to run deals on our platform. And in many cases, we're leveraging their relationships and their access to deal flow and then bringing that to bear for our investors. So that's the second way. And then the third way is I'd say is relationships with the investment banks. Within this space, you know, many of these cases, they're the people who are, have the sell side mandate on, you know, these, these either minority or majority stakes that are up for sale. I think, you know, a, an interesting sort of phenomenon that's occurred within the space is that valuations continuing to grow. We're not really seeing, you know, the likelihood of a public exit on the individual club asset level, which means that the minimum investment ticket 
uh, for these clubs is also growing, you know, by, by virtue and by nature of that, you know, 1% of an NBA team can be as high as 70, $75 million right now. It's just not that feasible for the average individual. And so I think that means that the investment banks have a harder job when syndicating some of these stakes. You know, I'm personally aware of stakes that have been out there for three or four years in their ice cold because there's just not one person who wants to come along and pay the $50 million for the 1%. And so I think in working with those groups, you know, we can, have some of their investors come in and actually be managers or solo GPs on the platform. We can give them access to our LP capital, which consists of family offices, private bank, private wealth, single credit investor, and high net worth clients, and have them round out that vehicle to be actually be able to take the stake in the league that they're looking for. So see that those are the three avenues, relationships with ownership, relationships with deal makers, and the relationships with, with the sell side mandates as well. Understood. You guys can't do any marketing, right? Online marketing. You guys can't do any online marketing, right? Or are you guys? Oh, no. We're allowed to market the community and the ability to, to to invest in professional sports. What the exemptions are for for marketing securities in the United States, and it depends really on the deal, and it also depends on the issuer um, as well who's conducting the transaction. There's frankly many different rules and exemptions underneath the Jobs Act of the United States that give you the ability to either, you know. Um, market or not market or the, or the term used by the SEC is generally solicit or not generally solicit. Most of the deals we're doing right now with the credit investors fall under what's called regulation D. There's two exemptions underneath regulation D. One is called 506B, one's called 506C. 506B is if you're sort of shortly, sort of quietly, you know, delivering the investment or syndicating the investment to a very close network of investment partners, not generally soliciting it. But then you also have 506C, which actually allows you to go sort of outward to the market and go to average people. The 506C is what we're seeing, you know, occur, frankly, a lot on platforms like AngelList, where you have a solo GP. They might have been, you know, let's say a former Andreessen Horowitz partner or something. They might have 60,000 followers on Twitter. Their kind of head gets big and they want to leave and they want to start their own. They want to start their own fund. Well, where do they go? They go to AngelList. They start their own syndicate. They they do it under 506C. They're able to post the link to co-invest with them on their Twitter account. Their Twitter followers co-invest with them into deals, and they can now have, you know, disposable capital to start being able to sort of build up their own personal investment track record. I think that's an area we'd like to sp- see this space get to. I'd say, you know, things are probably more opaque and a little bit more siloed as it currently exists. But I think that level of social capital formation is something we're interested with the accredited investor space, I think as that continues to develop, you know, we will hopefully in the, you know, especially with the launch of our retail product, um, be able to offer avenues for retail investors to get involved as well underneath other exemptions across, uh, you know, regulation CF, which allows you to raise up to $5 million from unaccredited investors, regulation A, which I think is also fairly interesting, but you know, probably require some conversation with the leagues, which allows you to raise up to $75 million from unaccredited investors. And then there's also regulation S as well, which allows you to tap into foreign investors. So I think we will see, you know, the, 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 the development of the space and, you know, the ability to tap investors across social channels and so, you know, really sort of pursue social social capital formation in the future. But, you know, how you are allowed to market those deals really depends on the exemption which you fall under. Understood. I know we're here up on time. Is it okay for three more questions or do you have to run? I got time, man. I got time. Okay. I'll just crush it down to three more. Uh, could you share 
some challenges or obstacles your company has faced and how you guys have been over been able to overcome them? Yeah, no, look, I think I, I sort of addressed this question a little bit earlier, but it was really a sort of three layered, um, you know, obstacle that we have to go after, right? Which was one, how do we deal within a, a private global securities framework? Number two, how do we deal within a, a, you know, league ownership rules and restrictions on a global basis? And then number three, you know, how do we entrench ourselves with this, which is really a social layer, you know, kind of into this old boys club of how stakes are traded hands. And I think those have been the biggest challenges, um, you know, thus far, I think, you know, we're, we're sort of getting to the point where we've, for the most part, in, in, in as wide of a scope as we possibly can, you know, sought to solve all three. But um, yeah, I'd say those are the ones that have definitely required a lot of brain damage to be able to overcome. Yeah. Can you dive in a, a little bit more into uh, number two that you mentioned in regards to following all the rules, laws and regulations of the league? Yeah, I mean, look, I think, you know, we've seen in North American sports, there was a history of corporate ownership within the space that existed, you know, probably 20 years ago, right? You had Nintendo, who was an owner of the Seattle Mariners, you had the, you know, uh, Disney who was owner of the Mighty Ducks of Anaheim and, um, and, and the LA Angels as well, actually. Um, and then, you know, you had some cases where, let's just say sports wasn't a core focus for these organizations, they were sort of, you know, became four sellers within the space that created, you know, precedents of transactions that I think, you know, sold for discounts that the leaks didn't necessarily love. And I think that sort of hurt the future of, of corporate ownership within the space. I think, you know, the league sort of had a policy after that, which was, you know, if you're, you kind of walk on two legs, you're a single person, that's, that's the, the, the requirement to be able to invest in the major leagues. But then, you know, we, that's also come across sort of the confluence of, um, which really been, you know, an absolutely huge development in the value of media rights associated with, with these sports clubs. And you have to remember that sports is the last form of live content left on the planet. It's the only real form of content that can guarantee an audience to advertisers. And therefore, you know, all the existing networks have pivoted towards sports, you know, the new entrants, the streaming platforms have pivoted towards sports. It's made the value of those media rights extremely valuable, but it's also caused huge valuation increases across all the teams. Like I said before, as those sort of valuations continue to increase, makes it harder for individuals to be able to participate because the check size continue to get bigger. And so back in 2019, you know, I think it was really when we started getting a lot of conviction in the space because we started seeing the development of rule sets that 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 were changing across the space. We saw Major League Baseball allowed private equity, the NBA open to private equity, we saw Major League Soccer and the NHL open to private equity, and we started seeing deals come into this in, in, into this space. Um, Silver Lake invested in Manchester City. Um, and it was kind of, you know, a lot of those things that um, I'd say gave us conviction once again, you know, that this was a space that we wanted to be in. Um, but, you know, to open up to private equity, you know, the leagues had to make rules because what you have to remember is if you're going to be investing across multiple assets within the same, same league, how do you retain the competitive balance that's so integral towards the actual, you know, live and, and, and broadcast product, which is pro sports. And so I think that's going to be a moving target. I think, you know, I, I would describe those rules as living tree. I think as you know, we've already seen the NBA update their private equity rules to include pension funds and sovereign wealth. And, you know, who knows where, where that will go ultimately in the future. Um, but those are sort of the rules in, in which I'm talking about. And it's mainly the private equity rules right now and the rules around, uh, uh, you know, beneficial ownership or single person ownership. Understood. 
What is your long-term vision for the company and how do you plan to achieve it? Yeah, 100%. I think I, I referenced this a little bit earlier as well, but what we've really done here with FanClub Sports Capital is to take models of liquidity that work really well in other verticals of private markets and then bring them into the pro sports space. And so really the model that we took here um, you know, for FanClub was, was what we call the angel list model or the Yield Street model, which is essentially a, a co-invest model with the professional investment managers with our credit investor base that can allow them to get access to deals with smaller allocations and know that the sort of the comfort of co-investing with, you know, very sophisticated people within the space. I think what we'll continue to do and, you know, what we really are focused on here is just being absolutely dominant and excellent at what we're doing here. And so we want to dominate the space. We want to be excellent at it. But I think over time, you know, we'll want to expand our, our services and product offerings and really have, you know, a capital market solution that will be catered towards all different kinds of assets and all different kinds of owners. And that probably begins with a retail market at some point. So giving clubs the ability to sell direct shares to general fans um, and retail investors, I think that is, like I said, part of our goals, probably for Q4 or maybe Q1 next year. Um, and then in addition to that, you know, what we'll also do at some point in this, probably in the latter half of 2024, but is also create a secondary marketplace for investors who invested in the primary offering of these deals to actually be able to get some liquidity before there's any kind of natural organic M&A or public market uh, exit event. And so we feel like the combination of all those three different services, the syndicate platform, the retail platform, and the secondary markets platform create a robust end-to-end -end capital markets ecosystem, which services all types of stakeholders across the chain. Um, and I think that's really what we're seeking to build out here is not just the syndicate platform, but the, the robust end-to-end -end, uh, ecosystem. Very exciting. Where can investors find more information? Yeah, 100%. Feel free to check us out at fanclubsports.co uh, is our main website. We have a pretty prominent um, uh, a sub stack that covers sports M&A topics. So substack.com slash fanclubsports. You can find us on Twitter, fanclubsports um, HQ, and then on Instagram at fanclubsports as well. So I appreciate that. I'll have everything put in the description, guys. And just to end off, David, I have six fun questions to ask if that's cool. 100%. Okay, so they're all favorites. Uh, what's your favorite sport? So favorite sport growing up was undoubtedly hockey. Uh, I will say that, you know, mixed martial arts and the UFC has is, is also been a passion of mine for a long time. I very much enjoyed the fights. Uh, and then I'd probably put number three, the NFL. Uh, yeah, it's just it's just incredible theater. What's, he, what's your favorite team in the NFL and NHL? So my favorite team in the NHL was actually the, the – Began as the Anaheim Mighty Ducks, now called the Anaheim Ducks. I was a huge Paul Correa fan growing up. My older brother, being sort of from the Southern Ontario area, was a Toronto Maple Leafs fan. And we were very adversarial at everything we did in life, from, you know, many sticks to, to video games to road hockey. And so by nature of that, I wanted to pick a different team. And as such, Paul Correa was my favorite player. The, the Ducks became a, a, a nice sort of avenue for me, and they treated me very well. Uh, as a fan, you know what I mean? I've seen four conference finals in my life, two Stanley Cup finals, one Stanley Cup. So that's been you know, a beautiful ride to be a part of. In the NFL, I did grow up in uh, Niagara, which is about uh, you know, 30 minutes from Orchard Park. Uh, so the Buffalo Bills are, are my team. And I think that you know, we got a pretty good squad lined up for this year. What about your favorite player on the Buffalo team? 
So my favorite, well, my favorite players in general, say growing up, it was Paul Korea and Tamu Solani were my favorite duck players. I was followed by Ryan Getzlav and Corey Perry. I'm a fan of Trevor Zegers right now as well. Um, but I'd say outside of hockey, you know, Connor McGregor was, a, was really one of my favorite athletes of all time. And then obviously on the Buffalo Bills, Josh Allen's my boy. Got it. What about favorite music? Favorite music, you know, I, I got some pretty diverse tastes, you know, listen to a ton of alternative rock, EDM, you know, I'd say historically the Arctic Monkeys are probably my favorite band, but, you know, very much into Rufus DeSoul, Tame Impala, I'd say groups like that. Uh, favorite food? Favorite food, you know, if I could eat one food, I think for, for the rest of my life, it would probably be sushi. Um, but uh, I'm also a big fan of, of, of Mexican and can't go wrong with tacos and tequila, right? And the last one, favorite activity? Yeah, like I think what's super important is just kind of, you know, being an entrepreneur, it obviously requires, you know, a, a pretty heightened level of, of dedication and, and work. And I'd say I work some pretty crazy hours. I think what's important to remember and all that is to take care of yourself. And so just going to the gym is, is important kind of for a mental level set, you know, once a day. Um, I'm, I'm also big at just just getting out for a walk. Honestly, if there's a couple phone calls I can take and go for about an hour spin, I think it's great to clear your head. You know, I, I would describe myself as a little too ADHD to be able to get into meditation, but the walking is sort of my form of active meditation. So it's something I, I enjoy. And then I think something super important too is, you know, just having a social life with friends and family. I think kind of being present in, in that and just enjoying your time kind of allows you to, to sort of recharge you know, from, from what is the, the stress of the day-to-day -day grind of the startup life. And, you know, you can wake up the next morning and you're, you're recharged and ready to bite the ass off a of bear. So. Absolutely. Well, David, it was a pleasure to have you on the One Soccer Nation podcast. I appreciate you taking the time. Hey, thank you, man. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm ready to come back anytime. Thank you. Cheers.